Wonderful. Could you mention to me what you had uh, observed this morning coming back from Sunday school? Could you stand up and just uh, share that with the church? pray for in a second. Michelle, Tom, thank you for putting on the picnic. Any comments about it? Right. Okay. Oh, nice. Okay, so there's an open invitation more or less to to those of you. So thank you, Tom and Michelle. Let's just especially pray. Oh, and Brother Bill Gill, Meister, you're going to be closing in prayer. Do you want us to give thanks for the food before we leave? Okay, so that people can rush right in. It looks like we're not going to have any rain from what I just observed. I don't know if that's the case, so that's good news. Does it? Well, that's beside the point. Okay, all right. Let, let's pray for our sister Doreen especially. Father, thank you that we can bear one another's burdens and we can lift up our sister to you, Lord, our sister Doreen. We just pray, Lord, that you would be with her at this time. Uh, oh, God, we thank you for the medical world and many things that they can do, that you have given, this, uh, given them this wisdom and this ability to be able to use modern technology in such a way that uh, our sister can be cared for. So, Lord, we just lift her up to you. We pray, oh, God, you would be with her through this difficult time. Help her, Lord, to heal and get well again and to be able to continue on her journey. As we ask these things, praying now you'd bless your precious word as we give you worship and thanks in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we're on verse number 7 and following. So if you can follow me on these verses, we'll read from 7 down of chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. Have you ever asked yourself the question, when did you start reading the Bible? Was it when you were a little child? Were you brought up in a Christian home? I suppose you would have had the Word of God addressed to you as a child. Or maybe you weren't brought up in a Christian home. By Christian, I mean born-again home. That's a true Christian. Where the Word of God was prominent in your life. You might have had a copy somewhere in the bookshelves, but you probably never accessed it. Do you ever wonder why you never read the Bible before? Well, for me, 
I had never read the Bible. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that. When At the age of seven, and when I first went to Sunday school, when my mother decided to send me to Sunday school, and my older brother walked me to Sunday school, uh, shortly after joining the Sunday school, they gave me a Bible. It was black, hard cover. It had, like, red edges to it. It was like, about this thick. And I remember when I get home, I, I put it in my closet, and I had a bit of a curiosity after a while to want to read it. And I started in Genesis chapter 1, which normally any book you start in chapter 1, right? So I started in chapter 1, then I got to like chapter 5 and 4 or 5, and I'm like, so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so, and and I just kept reading, and I'm like, I don't get any of this. Now, granted, I was only seven and a half or so, eight maybe at at that point, but it meant nothing. It it didn't resonate with me at all. And so I never returned to, to that Bible. I thought in the back of my mind, the Bible must be for religious people, must be for ministers and priests, but not for the average person like myself. And I maintained that right along. Thought that I could kind of find my own way through the world. But then I went to a retreat at the age of 19. You may have heard me say this. And it happened to be at a monastery. And uh, there was an opportunity for the, for the uh, teenagers that were on this retreat to ask the, mo- the monks in the monastery various questions. Well, I had more questions than anyone else did of the teens, and I was disturbing the team from wanting to end that question and answer period because they wanted to go out and jump in a swimming pool, which is a surprising place in a monastery to find a swimming pool, a built-in swimming pool. But nevertheless, I could understand that, but I just had a craving for answers. Finally, somebody named Paul Miner, he, he elbowed me in the ribs and he said, Hey, Gary, and he, say, he said it under his breath but angrily at me. He said, Why don't you just go get a Bible? All the answers are in it. And I go, Wow, bell went right off in my head. I couldn't wait to get home and go downtown, which was walking distance from me, to pick up my first Bible. And I started to read this time in the Gospel of Matthew. I don't know why. I had no one guiding me. I just... Started the Old Testament, as I just told you. This time I started the New Testament. And a whole new world opened up to me. And it was in chapter 6, of verse 19, that my life began to take a different turn. And God seemed like he used Matthew six nineteen, where Jesus says, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven that get me to think about the things above and not on things of the earth. As our brother was reading in Colossians, set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. And up to that point, I became very much aware that everything I was seeking for in life was all about getting it in this world. I had no prospects, no hope, no confidence in the world to come. I never thought about eternity. But that verse brought to my mind the importance of laying up treasures in heaven. And those were Jesus' words. And that seemed to be a starting point that God put me on a spiritual journey. But another question we could ask, too, about the Bible. What does the Bible say about the Bible? Did you ever think of that question? What does the Bible itself say about the Bible? Here's an example. In Joshua 1.8, it says, The book of the law was written... This is what the Lord says to Joshua, so that you shall meditate therein day and night to observe all that is written, that you may and will be made prosperous, and that you shall have good success. 
Psalm 119 verse 9 says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. So the word has a cleansing effect. Same, same uh, chapter of Psalm 119 verse 11. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So the word has an effect of, of reducing sin in our lives. Psalm 119 verse 5 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's what the Bible says about the Bible. 1 Corinthians 10.11 Sometimes we sort of dismiss the Old Testament as that's less understandable and it's more ancient than the New Testament and it's pre-Christ and we therefore kind of minimize its value. But the New Testament tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 after giving us a little narrative history about Israel's travel through the wilderness as we find it from Exodus to Deuteronomy, it says this, that these things are written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages has come. So the Bible says about itself that these things that are being written are written for our admonition so that we can read it and from it learn lessons that will redirect our paths. John 20, verse 31, John says, These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in His name. That's what the Bible says about the Bible. And it's written for that purpose. And when John writes in 1 John, it's probably the same kind of audience, at least some of them would have been familiar with the Gospel of John, as most commentators would think that 1 John was written after the Gospel of John. John now writes and says, These things are written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I love that. The Gospel was written so that we might believe, and after we have believed, the epistles, the teaching portions of the Word, are telling us these things are written so that you might know that you have eternal life. That's very important to know what you have. And the Bible says that's why it's been written. So we might ask the question here, why was the book of Ecclesiastes written? If you've read through the book of Ecclesiastes recently or ever, you would probably say it's one of the oddball books of the Bible. But we can't dismiss it simply because it has some language that just doesn't seem to match other portions of the Bible. There's reasons for that, and we emphasized over and over in the past about this this particular phrase about under the sun, under the sun, under the sun, and the vantage point in which Solomon or whoever the author of this book is looking at it, he sees things from an angle that, don't, that other books may not see it from. And we'll get to that in a little bit. So why was the book of Ecclesiastes written? You know, the whole Bible is like a puzzle with many pieces. Actually, 66 pieces. If you took the book of Ecclesiastes out of the Bible, you would be missing the whole picture. Every book of the Bible plays a role in the outlook of the whole of the Scriptures, so we cannot in any way minimize the value of any book. So let's look at these verses that we have, and we're not going to take a whole lot of time this morning because of our schedule, and you've heard already so much. But verse 7 says, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Oppression drives the wise. Now, the word wise or wisdom is mentioned in verse 7, verse 10, verse 11, and twice in verse 12. Much of the book of Ecclesiastes is almost parallel 
to the book of Proverbs. And it is proverbial in lots of ways. There are a lot of proverbial statements. What is a proverb? A proverb is heavenly wisdom for an earthly path. If you want to know how to live your life as a believer, and even generally, you could use the book of Ecclesiastes in counseling even the unconverted, which is not always easy to do. And of course, they need the light of the gospel to truly give them that inward light of understanding spiritual things. But even if they don't, we have the book of Proverbs and such to be able to use as wisdom statements to help people get along in their lifetime. And so we often find many proverbial statements in the book of Ecclesiastes, and here's a little series of them. Oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Now these are oftentimes universal statements that have application to everybody in this world. It drives the wise into madness. Madness. Have you ever been disrupted from your Christian walk? Have you ever felt kind of like you've, you've like disconnected yourself from the Holy Spirit and spiritual things and the Bible and all that you, you, you've taught and, been, and have been taught and you feel like you're in another zone? That can happen to any one of us. I think we all have experienced it at one time or another. And here the author is saying that oppression drives even the wise into madness. So there's no getting out of the being in this body. We're always going to have some degree of difficulties with all sorts of things. And here the author says it's oppression that drives the wise into madness. And a bribe corrupts the heart. It shows our vulnerability. We're not innocuous as Christians. Though we've been saved and we have the Holy Spirit, you could say, planted within us. We've got that new nature. We were, our brother was reading about putting on the new man and putting off the old man. Praise God, we've got a new man, but we also have the old man there. You know, in Galatians, it talks about the works of the flesh, or I would like to put it this way, the fruit of the flesh is, and it gives a description of, of the activities of the flesh that all of us possess. And right after that, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. What a contrast. The fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. The one should be replaced with the other. But we're never going to get rid of the works of the flesh. We're going to have it till the day we die. Who shall deliver me from this tabernacle of death? Paul says in Romans chapter 7, I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So don't get discouraged, brothers and sisters, if you get into a slump or if you have days in your Christian life where you feel like you're out of tune with God and something has disrupted your pathway. We need to have that wisdom that cometh from above. Let's move on to verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. I love that. It's very easy to kind of throw in the towel, to give up, to quit, to say, game over, I'm leaving. I was watching, uh, what's his name, Aaron Judge for the New York Yankees. He's got 60 home runs. I think, how many did Ruth hit? 60, right? 
and Maris hit 61. So Yankee Stadium is packed with people just waiting and watching for Aaron Judge to hit his 61st home run to tie Roger Maris's record on the Yankees and hopefully the 62nd. I don't know, there's about a dozen games left or so, something like that, whether he does or doesn't. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, anxiety, you could say. Every pitch, people got their cameras up there snapping, and they're just waiting for them to get, get a shot of that crack of the bat, and there it goes over the left field fence or center fence, whatever it is. The end of a thing would be better than the beginning. If you look at Aaron uh, Judge, I think he's full of anxiety. He's got 58,000 people in the stands that are on the edge of their seat just waiting for this event to happen. And I bet he's there saying, I can't wait till this is over with. Well, when is it going to be over? The end of a thing is better than the beginning. It's not easy when you're going through the valley. We all know that. Yea, though I walk, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. The Lord will get us through those valley periods of time. And during that time, let us not forget that there will be an end. The end of a thing is better than the beginning. It's hard for us to be able to endure that. That's why the next verse says, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Because the proud spirits that we have want to get something over with quickly. We want an immediate remedy. And I think as spoiled Americans, it's very easy. You've got a headache, go grab an aspirin. You have a problem, call your lawyer. You need help, go see this counselor, etc., etc. And we have pretty much instant presto changeo uh, things that we can do to, to make adjustments in our lives. But sometimes things will take time and we have to be patient, not leave the bleaches, just wait and see of what the end's going to bring. Verse 9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. It's lodged in the heart of fools. In other words, God is saying that anger in the heart is foolishness. A foolish person will be an angry person. Angry words stir up strife. I don't know how many of you can go back in your history before you were converted, but maybe you had anger problems. I think I did. If I struck out in a game, I would smash the bat on home plate. Sometimes I would throw it up against the barbed wire fence. I was nuts. Like Jimmy Pearsall, I mean, I, I, I'm embarrassed when I think of those days. I would be so frustrated with myself if I struck out or if it was a key time in a game and I didn't come through. I was ripping at myself. I had anger burning in my soul. But now, with a heavenly light from above, everything changes. I see things differently. I see the temporal things as being insignificant in comparison to the eternal things. The things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I value those things. God tempers that, those anger spirits. As a matter of fact, it requires that an elder be patient in spirit. Paul says to Timothy, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Sometimes I have to conflict with someone who disagrees with the Word of God. And sometimes we can get, it, it can get a little heated. And I have to be reminded, the servant of, of the Lord must not strive. 
but be gentle unto all men apt to, pe- apt to uh, teach. That's the spirit that we, in meekness it says, in meekness we sow. Righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. James says that the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. You know why fools have to, in their anger, raise their voices? Because it tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes 10.10, if the axe is dull, then much more strength must be put to its force in thrusting it against the wood or whatever it is. If you have the right words, those words in and of themselves should be sufficient. How forcible are right words? Right words. Obviously, we should be angry with sin. Jesus himself was angry when he went into the temple and he saw, or the synagogue, and he saw the unbelief displayed in their countenances. He said he was angry. We should have that kind of a spirit as well, but one that's tempered, of course, and one that's appropriate. We should be angry with the devil. We should be angry with sin. But in general, it should not be lodged in our hearts. Verse 10. Say, why were the former days better than these? That's a common thing. Oh, the old days. I remember the old days compared to the present days. That's a slogan, isn't it? It's not like it used to be. Well, Solomon, uh, Solomon, if he's the author, corrects that and says, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything is really the same. If we resurrected a Spurgeon, if we resurrected a D.L. Moody, if we resurrected a John Calvin or a Martin Luther, they'd all say, there's nothing has really changed. All things continue as they were, as from the beginning. Let's not think that the 21st century is so unique that it's absolutely foreign to the past. I'd have to take what Scripture says in regards to that. I think that sometimes we use the past as sort of a, a way to con- constantly disdain the present, not recognizing that the past wasn't so glorious. You even go into the New Testament and look at the, the church of Corinth. Almost every epistle is written for correctional purposes, behaviorally, doctrinally, Immorality in Corinthians and in Thessalonians, all those things had to be addressed. You want to take it back to the Pilgrim's days, the Puritan days? There'll be things that might surprise you. And then I think you might conclude and say, there's really nothing new under the sun. All things continue as they were from the beginning. For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. See, a wise would say, Yeah, we can learn something from the past, but really nothing has changed. Verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. What does that mean, see the sun? I think what he's talking about is, again, that vantage point of seeing things from from this side of heaven, not in the grave, not in heaven, but here on earth, that we see the sun. We live as people under the sun, I think. That's a recurring theme in the book of of, uh, Ecclesiastes. And Solomon is saying that about our existence. Wisdom is good with an inheritance. Verse 12, for the protection of wisdom, here's that word again, wisdom, is like the protection of money. The protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. Again, these seem to be odd proverbs, don't they? 
you have the better than statement. Something is better than something else. Something is better than something else. That often is repeated over and over in Proverbs and here in Ecclesiastes as well. So the protection of wisdom is like there's supposedly a similarity, but not necessarily an equivalence between wisdom and money. Protection of wisdom, protection of money. Of course, stewardship is important in the Christian life. We should, we should value money, but we shouldn't idolize money. We shouldn't lay up for ourselves treasures here on earth. Money shouldn't be a, a love for us. The love of money is the root of all evil. But money's not the root of all evil. It's the love of money that, that is the root of all evil. Money can be used for outstanding purposes, and we need to value our dollar, how we use it, how we spend it. Let's be careful that we not be fools in that regard. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. The advantage of knowledge. Peter says, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Some people want to grow just in grace and not in knowledge. Some want to go grow just in knowledge and not in grace. It says of Jesus that he was full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. That's the right balance. Grace is what we need from God so that we can minister to people in, in their needs. But we also need to have that knowledge so that we can apply that wisdom in ways that are intelligent, that can be life-changing and life-transforming it for ourselves and for others as well. Verse 13, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? You know, the tough question here is, who is the one that is making crooked? Well, some translation may, uh, would, would translate that word crooked, bent. Consider the work of God. Who can straighten that which was made bent? Is God the one that is making it crooked? Or is man the one that is making it crooked or him crooked? I think you can see it from either side and there's, there's appropriate uh, ways of interpreting that. But more than likely, because it says consider the work of God, that it likely is connected with God as being the one who makes what is crooked. Now, your imagination can go as far as mine in saying, well, wait a minute, does God make anything crooked? Hmm. Everything that God created was perfect. Um, we've been created by God, but we, are, we have imperfections. People can be crooked. Maybe God can somehow straighten that which is crooked. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Maybe it's only he that can make straight what is crooked. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? I guess we could go in that direction and say... You know, we often say, we need to straighten him out. We need to straighten her out. We need to straighten ourselves out. How do we straighten one another out? How, how does one get straightened out? Well, the real straightening comes from God. When you think of it, God has done a miracle in your life and changed you to what you are. And you're not a completed work yet, of course. There's still time ahead. The Spirit of God has not terminated His activity in your life. You might feel like you're at a dead end in your Christian walk. Stop thinking like that. We were reading about, he is faithful, he is faithful, right, Brother Mike? He is faithful, he is faithful. He's with us, he's with us. Those are things that we need to cleave to and we need to hold on with all of our hearts. 
that he is not abandoning us. He will make what is crooked in your life and my life straight. I find myself more and more finding faults in myself, maybe even sins in myself that need to be straightened. And I find that in myself, I am powerless to be able to straighten out that which is crooked in my life. But my confidence is not in myself anyway, and I need to realize it. God would expect and require that I be open and honest about myself and judge myself. Examine yourselves, we're told, over and over again. We can't be like the one who tries to take the mote out of their brother's eye when they have one of their own in their own eye. I want to be able to have the discernment to be able to say, here's a big moat in my eye, a log in my eye, and Lord, help me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and lead me in the way everlasting. That's what we need to have, a spirit like that. So God can make that which is crooked straight. He is the remedy. He is the cure. He's the one that has all the answers in our lives. Wisdom, Proverbs says, is the principal thing. With all you're getting, get wisdom. Where does that wisdom come from? The wisdom that cometh from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. That's the wisdom that comes from above. The earthly wisdom is sensual and devilish. Praise God, you've been born with life by the Spirit from above. You've been born from above. That's what it means to be born anew. It's born a different way than the natural way, the supernatural way. Not the earthly way, but the heavenly way. And with that heavenly birth comes heavenly wisdom. You are what you are now by the grace of God. God has given wisdom to us now that we don't, didn't ordinarily possess. Listen to this precious verse in 1 Corinthians 1.30. It says, Of Him are you in Christ Jesus. How did you get in Christ Jesus? Of Him. Remember that. Remember that. That's how you got into Christ. Because of Him. Why did you receive Him? Because you were born of God. That's why you received the Lord Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Of Him are we in Christ Jesus. Who of God is made unto us? God made Christ to be something to you that you could never have recognized on your own. He made him to be to us what? Wisdom. First thing, righteousness, sanctification. That's the first thing that Christ has made to us. Because it says right there that Christ is the wisdom of God. Christ is the power of God. Where do we get this wisdom? In Jesus. Jesus says, he that hears these sayings of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And when the rains came and the floods and the winds, the house on the rock stood firm. So build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the wisdom of God. And that wisdom of God has been given to you. Praise God. So we build our house on the solid rock, the rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our all-wise God, which is who you are, Lord. We thank you, O God, for your mercies in saving us and delivering us from a horrible pit and open our eyes. And Lord, if anyone here does not know that one, that wisdom, that Christ from above, 
We pray, Lord, that you would give them the Spirit of God to convict them of their sins and draw them to yourself and give them life from above. Lord, bless our church family and all that are in attendance today. Remember those that aren't with us as well. We commend to you and the whole church of God. Help us, O God, in these evil days to stand and do everything to stand by putting on thy whole armor to be able to resist the forces of the devil, O God, that we find each and every day that uh, pester us over and over again. Help us, as your word says, that God is able to make them stand. So, Lord, help us to cleave to you, know that you are with, with us, that you are faithful, and that, Lord, there is wisdom unlimited that you give to us, your people, if we would just be humble and lowly and learn of you, Lord Jesus. We give you praise in your precious name. Amen.